This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Mauerbytes Labs, we spotted a revived Bitcoin scam, this time promising millions in riches to those sheltering at home during the coronavirus pandemic. I don't know about you, but the only riches I'm encountering are my richly smart decisions to stay at home to stop the spread of the virus. Seriously, stay at home. Our team also found quite possibly the most outrageous coronavirus scam of all time. Hackers promoted a digital antivirus tool that could protect folks from the actual coronavirus. Instead of installing some sort of impossible digital vaccine, victims received a botnet that granted criminals near-total access to their machines. We get the lure to compare computer viruses to, you know, sciencey ones, but just like you wouldn't download a car, unfortunately, you also can't download a cure. Continuing on with cyber threats, we spotted a credit card skimmer injected into the website of household food storage brand Tupperware. Five days after repeatedly reaching out to Tupperware, with no response, we published our findings, and the vulnerability was finally removed. Or you could say the threat was contained? We also reviewed the cybersecurity features built into Windows 10, as Windows 7 reached end of life in January. That doesn't mean that Windows 7 is dead, just that Microsoft will no longer support it. Like, Microsoft is disappointed in Windows 7. Sort of like Windows 7 came home after four years at Dartmouth and told its parents it only half-completed the coursework for its $220,000 associate's degree in romance languages. Finally, we pushed against the old notion that enterprise security solutions should be as bulky and repressed as the traditional complex models that serve big business. Instead, enterprise cybersecurity should be as nimble and easy to use as consumer products, requiring little training. We call this the democratization of cybersecurity, to which traditional, complicated cybersecurity solutions replied, get off my lawn. In cybersecurity news across the world, The Register reported that a UK housing association mistakenly shared a spreadsheet with the names, addresses, dates of birth, religion, sexual orientation, ethnic origin, and disability status of 3,500 people. The spreadsheet was linked inside an email meant to remind tenants to update their contact details. Update your contact details? Sure, no problem. Update the contact details of 3,500 other people? Big problem. The data breach discovery firm SpyCloud found that employees of Fortune 1000 companies flounder at creating unique passwords, with the two most popular passwords being 123456 and... (sighs) Password? If we've learned anything about how investors respond to drastic failures in cybersecurity, these companies' stock prices will soar. Believing Computer told readers that hackers compromised corporate websites and news blogs to install a backdoor in victims' machines. The attack, which manipulates websites to look like a legitimate Google Chrome update page, also includes the delivery of keyloggers, data stealers, and trojans. We're at a loss here. You should read the news. You should update your software. Huh. And finally, researchers at both Bitdefender and Proofpoint discovered cyber attacks targeting people working from home during the coronavirus outbreak. Bitdefender found hackers manipulating home routers in Europe and the United States, while Proofpoint uncovered a wave of phishing attacks seeking people's online streaming credentials. 
For many of us sheltering at home, these cyber attacks could be the closest we come to social contact in a long while. Hold me, Mr. Robot. Our main story concerns data privacy, an enormous topic in technology today. Every day, it seems more and more companies receive either scrutiny or praise for their failures or accomplishments in data privacy. Meanwhile, U.S. lawmakers have finally granted new data privacy protections to some Americans. The California Consumer Privacy Act came into effect this year, and Maine and Nevada passed their own data privacy laws last year. Further, data privacy legislation has been introduced in Washington, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, and other states. But these statewide efforts don't apply universally. For those lacking government protections, what can they do to protect valuable information online? How much of that responsibility is on the user versus the companies they rely on? And whose fault is it, if anyone's, that our data is now sent to dozens of companies, which then package and sell it to the highest bidder without any of us knowing? To help us better understand the state of data privacy today, how we got here, and why we're in this predicament, we're talking today to Adam Kajawa, a director of Malwarebytes Labs. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Adam, to help our listeners at home understand uh, your role, what you do at Malwarebytes, can you talk just a little bit about yourself and your research? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So I've been in this industry for over 15 years. I used to work for the government. I used to uh, do various work for private industry, including uh, education, course development, instruction, things like that. Mm-hmm. But primarily, my focus has been on on fighting you know, cybercrime and, and actors uh, uh, behind the scenes and on the front lines. So uh, at Malwarebytes, my primary responsibility is, you know, doing data analysis, gathering information about trends, about the kind of threats that we see increasing or decreasing for our customers, as well as, as relating that to the threat landscape as a whole, understanding what potentially could be coming down the pipeline and lessons learned from stuff we've, we've already dealt with in the past. And with that, you know, let's let's get right into it here. It appears you can't really read a, a day's worth of headlines now without running into at least some story about data privacy. Amazon's Ring doorbell app for Android was revealed to be sort of stuffed with third-party trackers, and, and mm-hmm. Facebook separately agreed to pay $550 million to settle a lawsuit about its facial recognition tool when it suggests photos, photo tags that happened in Illinois. And those two examples happen like 48 hours from one another. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty obvious, you know, data privacy today is, is not just important, but it's also recognized by the public as important. So why is that happening now as opposed to five or 10 years ago? Well, there's, uh, there's two things, I guess. The first is that we're seeing the technology exists now more so than, you know, potentially five years ago to collect this data en masse. But well, I guess what's more important is seeing the abuse of it. Uh, mm-hmm. When we see attacks like sextortion attacks that you know steal stolen credentials to try and trick somebody into clicking on a link, I mean that's the very mildest of this. Mm-hmm. The worst being identity theft, fraud, all this other kind of stuff that does happen a lot behind the scenes, and more and more folks are experiencing this. So I think it's the exposure of both a we're talking about it more. We're seeing the fallout from how you know malicious actors or whomever get access to this kind of information and use it against us, and so we're we're beginning to understand. Hey, this is far more important than we thought. At the end of the day, like we were really not prepared for what was coming as far as the technology to obtain this information. You know, advertising itself is is kind of a big reason why this is happening. And if you go back, you know, just television, people make ad dollars just watching ads, and then 
when we started interacting more with, with the platforms that were pushing us ads, with, with things that could gather more information about us. I mean, the data that Facebook collects, I'm sure that, what are they called? Those TV people. I'm sure they would love to have the kind of data that Facebook, <laughs> Google, anybody else has been able to gather about the, the watching habit, you know, the viewing habits, the interest of their, you know, of the people they're trying to get their attention to. So, so yeah, I mean, it, we kind of started from that. And I think for the general public, the mindset of, oh, this is just a passive thing. I'm letting them know that I'm interested in this by watching it. There's no other information yeah. that's valuable to this, right? And kind of staying in that little bubble mindset that this is okay, this is okay. And at the end of the day, you know, advertisements or attention grabbing things are our new form of currency. So yeah. we have to we have to be able to pay for it with that. The one thing is is that data isn't like actual money, you know. A dollar mm-hmm. you can give to an organization, they could put it in the bank, somebody can steal it and it won't affect the person who originally gave the dollar. Yeah. With data, you give them your information, they insecurely store it, it gets breached, it gets stolen by an attacker or a third party of some kind, and suddenly you are feeling the effects more than that organization like Facebook or whomever that took the data in the first place. Yeah, this kind of relationship that you're talking about, like you said, you know, the corollary that we had, the sort of analog to it was TV, the television count. So what if they knew that I watched X show, you know, at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. every Mm -hmm. single weeknight? And trying to transfer that over to Facebook, like, yeah, there is a lot more than that. There's a lot more that's being kind of offered to them. And so because we just didn't really understand what was happening, does, does that mean that, that that was always present, that something went unaddressed in sort of the ecosystem of online advertising? Or did, or did like something go wrong, right? Was it all perfect and good when the internet was first built and then there was a collapse or, or kind of what, what was the pooling factor? This is kind of a, a universal truth, I think. When you go from an analog system to a more digital one, a lot of stuff gets confused, a lot of stuff gets lost. And so I, I think that this is a combination of two different groups. The primary group being the people who are evolving the technology, the people that are building out the processes, the systems that can that can push advertising or collect information about users and stuff like that. And in the minds of these people, they're doing the, the greater good. You know, they're like, yes, mm-hmm. we're doing this in order to maximize our business, in order to provide more offering to our customers, you know. And we think this is the best thing to do because, hey, it'll, it'll remove things like getting just spammed with ads or, or other information that isn't relevant to your interests, things like that. So the other group being the ones who say, thanks for building this. I'm going to use it to scam people now. And that happens a lot. Uh, and, and in fact, most of malvertising, a, a big one of the, the primary methods that malvertising has been able to be launched effectively and this is this is basically whenever there's an, an ad you come across online and inside of that ad there's code to either redirect you to an exploit landing page or actual exploit code in some cases it's rare these days but regardless it's utilizing these these frameworks these systems that were built by the advertising industry in order yeah. to better focus better target potential customers with ads and with information that would be more relevant to that person. So yes, on the one side, you're saying, I'm not being inundated with a flood of irrelevant information. On the other side, the targeting of you know what my interest has opened up a vulnerability that can very likely be exploited yeah. by this other group who is about scamming people, is about doing the same tricks we've seen for generations against people versus people, but in a digital way. Before we get like, you know, too much into it, I'm also super curious about this advertising framework, right? Because Mm -hmm. I think at least myself, personally, even someone who has written about data privacy, who has cared about it, 
I think it was really in the past like year or two years that I started to really understand the web of information that can be connected to me and that I also kind of inadvertently give to a company like Facebook. And I think um, Facebook's new tool about how to see what sort of third party's data is either being shared to or being shared from also really helped contextualize that, right? They have this new tool where you can kind of go in and see like, hey, Facebook has received this many sort of items from this company. And I noticed that uh, like Chase Bank had sent like thousands of deliveries to Facebook, which is like insane. And when you see it, you're like, of course, of course. Like, why, why wouldn't they do that? But I think for a lot of people, like until you see it, it doesn't make sense. So I'm just trying to understand what is this enormous framework? How does it work? What are the rules? <laughs> There's a lot of different, there's different frameworks. It's not, Mm -hmm. if everybody used the same data privacy system, which honestly might be a good solution, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) (laughs) then, you know, it'd be easier. But yeah, I mean, let's say, let's take the advertising example again. That process requires a service or a um, advertisement server service. So the ones that actually are the ones that people pay to show their ads on websites. And then they, Hmm. you know, push that ad to the network they have of various websites with their ads on them. And so the information collected through either doing things like what operating system are you using, you know, what, uh, yep. where your location is, stuff like that, that all could be gathered with that kind of system. And then, you know, previous interactions with the system as well. And that creates more of a profile about what you're into, what you're looking at. With Facebook and other services, it all comes down to really their sharing of third parties, like you said. But also it's, it's meant to maximize their own business, to make it more efficient in their minds, you know. By having it, Facebook as being this source that can communicate with other services you use in your life, it, on the surface, makes things easier, right? It seems like, <laughs> oh, I just one click, single sign-on, I'm good to go. Right. But it's, like I said, it's the development of that stuff, and it doesn't take a lot to get creative about how to use that in a malicious way or how to, you know, not paying attention to the, to the actual security of that data. So, like I said, I mean, there's lots of different frameworks out there that have been, that are being used. And that's part of the problem, though, you know, is that you're right, we have all these different frameworks, but we also can't regulate every single one. We can't say that the encryption used or the method of storing information about a potential user or a client or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can't put regulations on that one single platform because there isn't just one single platform. And if, if three right. platforms in the U.S. can't do it, then they'll go and use the four platforms in China that will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. With this as well, like you said, there's different systems at play and there's also different people here. And, and we were talking about it, but the framework that's been made to sort of make things convenient for us or allegedly convenient for us, right? No longer getting irrelevant ads is the same thing that can make us weaker to attacks. So whose responsibility is it to protect data privacy, right? Is it my fault that I clicked on that advertising like campaign or is it a company's fault you know, for getting hacked? Is it my fault for uploading my credit card details? Like, I'm wondering, yeah, whose responsibility well, is it to protect data privacy? Right. We, we are in a place right now where it can't be the responsibility of the, the victim. I mean, honestly, in order to even, you know, work with or interact with these systems, you have to provide your own information to it. And they even mm-hmm. have systems and checks to ensure that you're a real person so that they can, right. you know, like, for instance, if they thought you were a bot, now, we can say yeah. that, the justification, oh, yeah, we're building out this stuff to ensure that bots aren't creating accounts, so we have to double-check to make sure the person's real. But doesn't that also benefit your system that, that ensures that you're not targeting bots with your advertisements, but rather collecting information from real people? Right. It's, it's a double-sided sword on that, on that front. So then, 
if it's not entirely on the on the victim, what can be done to fix this system? You know, and, right. and how do we move forward? Well, I mean, regulations are good. They're a really great mm-hmm. start. They will help us create a framework of what is of what we want to see. Help to set the ground rules. Obviously, all advertisers, all all systems, or people who are you know securing PII or anything else for for customers is going to have to you know modify the way they do things, and they can choose to ignore it if they want to work outside of the laws of of at least this country. But look at what's happening in GDPR, you know, mm-hmm. in Europe with how many people are having to modify the way they do things. As far as fixing it. Like I said before, it's not the uh, the responsibility of the user to say, I, I need to protect my data, even though I have to give it to you in order to log in or, or to mm-hmm. work with you. But one day that may change. So mm-hmm. for now, you know, it is the responsibility of these companies. If they say, this is how we operate our business and you're not doing it in a correct way, then how are we supposed to trust you? But do we have a choice also? That's becoming less and less of a thing that we have. We, we have fewer choices now because a lot of businesses and services and things that used to be you able to be able to call or go to a physical location or something like that. Now you have to go online to do it. And that mm-hmm. that usually involves some extra information, some extra stuff. You know, recently and maybe it's just talking about this podcast, but I was mm-hmm. I was filling out an application for to rent a new house and the amount of data they wanted from me, it just it terrifies me. And I just got very upset writing in the whole thing. I knew I had to do it. Right. And it was yeah. on a, you know, it was on an encrypted connection. The server I was I was working with was encrypted. But yeah, I would just the storage of that information or how many other times have you if you filled out a rental application or something else and mm-hmm. or a credit card application yeah. and did they shred that data? You know, do they, they <laughs> toss it or do they enter it into a computer where it stays forever or do they put it in a file cabinet where it stays forever? And that how secure is that data? And the information that you provide to that thing could give someone the enough information to, to open a credit card, to modify any of your existing accounts, probably to, you know, get past your security questions. There's just all kinds of stuff. So for now, we have to keep building out these laws and yeah. demanding that the companies we work with follow them or at least try to design their systems around it so that we can protect data as much as possible. But that's not something that is sustainable in my opinion. And okay. unless we had some sort of actual enforceable uh, you don't do this and we're going to shut you down or put you in jail or whatever, right. then it's going to fall back on the user to say, do you trust this organization or not? Do you, yeah. do you have confidence in their ability to do things? And at that point, you know, we may see the development of new technologies. I hope we do. Some mm-hmm. things that, that put the control of the data back in the hands of the user instead of expecting that, that the people you know, utilizing the data will, will secure it correctly. Yeah. Do you see even a potential future where that equation has been flipped that way, you know, and maybe companies and services don't require us to give so much information? I think we need a way to prove and secure our own information locally or through some sort of service or something. But, you know, you reduce the attack surface is the goal here. So let's say there was one company, there's just a broker company. We'll just, we'll just say, I mean, data broker means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm going to use it in this sense to refer to someone who has a direct customer that is a, or a, a user or whatever, this could be an automated system that entrusts their data with them, just with them. And from there, this service or this system or whatever could communicate with third parties and say, you need data about my user? Well, here's an API, an encrypted API. Here's how you store the data for X amount of time, or here's all the data you actually need right now. If you need mm-hmm. more data, you have to come back and ask, and we'll, in determining on whether or not the user is okay giving out that data, mm-hmm. we'll let you have it. 
But that's where we're going to have to go because data is valuable now. It may not have been as valuable 20 years ago. It, right now, it's becoming more and more and more valuable. That sort of data broker also sounds sort of like, a, I've heard that idea posited as like a data manager as well, right? Yeah. I assume like that there would be tons of them like in this kind of potential future. And that like, again, because I'm, I'm trying to look forward and I'm thinking that like, what if once again, I'm given the, the decision of like, oh, what data manager am I going to choose? Yeah. And that also feels like a difficult equation, a difficult thing to have to deal with in this different future. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that also allows our governments and our, our governing bodies to focus more intently on a few organizations rather than saying, everyone in the world, follow this data privacy law. Good luck. Uh, mm-hmm. And saying, all right, data brokers, you know, 15 data brokers that operate mm-hmm. out of this state or this, or this country or whatever like that, we are going to audit all of you and ensure that you are following the regulations that we have set forth in our, in our privacy laws and you're doing the best for your, your customers. And that's, that's going to have to be part of it. You know, this has to be a, yeah. a protected resource. Our data has to be a protected resource by our own government. You know, if they're not going to use it against us, that is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that it has to come down eventually to the point where we have to be responsible for our own data and what gets put out there. Right now, there's been a lot of benefit from these companies for themselves in being vague about what they do with our data or yeah. putting it in a form that makes it impossible to understand. I think everyone who listens to this, everyone in the universe could agree that most EULAs uh, and most like privacy policy things are written in language that make it intentionally confusing, that make it easy for yeah. the companies to go to court and say, actually, we meant it this way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we see an effort, you know, Mauerbytes tries to simplify our privacy policy pretty well, but, you know, Facebook is doing more. And like you mentioned before, showing where your data is going, who's, you know, using it, that is entering into the world where we're being more kept in the loop on what are, what's going on with our data and understanding what organizations are going to do with our data in language that isn't that isn't legal jargon that just say, you know covers their ass, but rather you know ensures the privacy of their customers and makes them want to work with that organization. For folks out there who you know want to take steps to help themselves, who are like, hey, I'm I'm committed to this. Is there anything they can do? Is there anything you know, listeners who take data privacy seriously, who want to change settings, you know, on their phone or their browsers or anything like that? What steps can they take to help themselves out? On the very least, like on the scale of privacy is kind of important to me too. I am so afraid of my privacy being stolen that I, I sleep in a tinfoil hat. <laughs> um, so concerned that, that your privacy may be stolen, you know, the very easiest thing to do is to get credit monitoring and lock down your credit accounts, require a pin or something like that. So the people that can't just automatically create new accounts with your information. So that, I mean, that's, that's a very simple way to make sure your data isn't used in that kind of way. Beyond that, I mean, you could definitely avoid a lot of advertisements and things like that through ad blockers. You can utilize mm-hmm. a VPN if you are really concerned about websites that are logging your cookies or, or mm-hmm. logging that you you know showed up on the website, what you do with it, because there's plenty of that going on. So a VPN right. would be good to anonymize that kind of stuff. Are there things that businesses should just be doing as a sort of standard, you know, regulation aside in yeah. terms of how they store customer information, how they encrypt it? Yeah, what, what should they be doing? Yeah, so there's there's two things. The first one, collect as little data as you can. Like if mm. you don't need all that other information, don't collect it. Don't save it. It's not relevant. And it may be, mm. if anything, it may be dangerous to the customer. Yeah. The second thing, 
And this is what I, I like to tell folks, especially when it comes to like ransomware and stuff. But this is exactly the same reason why I say it for ransomware. Identify that data in your network, wherever it is in your business. Is it all in a central location? Is all this, or is it scattered across? Because if it's scattered mm-hmm. across, that is bad, bad security hygiene. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that all of your data is secured in a central location, the, the most valuable data, the data that is wow. going to break you if you lose or is going to hurt people if you, you know, misplace. So you need to, to make sure that that's, that's secured. You understand where that data is. You put additional protections behind it. That could be an additional firewall. That could be additional credentials required to access that data or that information in order to keep it separate from your, your large network as a whole. All right. This, this should be in like a vault in mm-hmm. your network, not sitting on, you know, on the corner of your network. So yeah, taking those steps will help you know where your data is and be able to protect it greater than other kinds of data. If you're truly concerned and you want to screw around with cyber criminals, you can set up a fake data honeypot or Ah, something. Put up a a fake server in your network that says, you know, customer info and fill it with garbage. (laughs) So if anybody does manage to break into your network, they would go after that with the low hanging fruit being like, awesome, I got it. I wouldn't necessarily look at the top secret, ignore this door vault we have Uh where the actual data lives. Right. The centralization, I guess, of data. When I first heard about that, it actually struck me as kind of counterintuitive because my brain was going into like, well, wouldn't it be safer to scatter data in the sense that if criminals actually do breach one of those servers, they only have one piece rather than Fort Knox, you know, everything happening. Mm -hmm. And so why is that, you know, why is that not actually how it works? Well, first of all, we see more and more business-focused attacks that use lateral movement, so they Mm -hmm. find all aspects of your network, and even still, they can easily do a search, (laughs) you know, on a few things. Look at password managers. You know, here's a good example. I love password managers. Some people don't. Some people say, putting all your passwords in one place is bad, you know, security. But you have a master password that encrypts all the other passwords you have, and then it automatically fills in those passwords for you. So you don't have to remember them. You don't Mm -hmm. have to screw them up or leave them on a post-it somewhere. And yeah, it comes down to that. You want to reduce the attack surface. So if you have a a network where data is just strewn about all over the place, Mm -hmm. yeah, it may be more inconvenient uh, for the attacker to have to go to each system and try to find the data and collect it and compile it all. And that yeah. that is definitely an idea of how you could potentially secure things. But if you're able to, in order to actually secure it to the level that data needs to be, you would probably end up reducing operational capabilities, requiring additional credentials or, or something to try and limit the access by unauthorized parties under your endpoints or wherever you're wherever storing, storing the data, mm-hmm. which could hurt your employees, could hurt your customers, things like that. So, but yeah, but centralizing it, you can put additional massive amounts of security behind a single server, you know, versus trying to protect data across an entire network. So like I said, reducing the attack surface is usually what we're trying to do. And and so by doing that, you do reduce the attack surface. And some people could still make that point. If you don't properly secure that protected data, then it's just super vulnerable and you've managed to put it all in one place for the bad guys. And yeah, that's definitely a possibility, but that is your responsibility to begin with when you took on this data, you know? You know, finally here, it's the start of a new decade, right? It's 2020. What do you think is going to happen in the data privacy space in our future? Uh, Well, I don't know if we've hit kind of a data Pearl Harbor yet. You know, there's definitely been plenty of exposures over the last year of poor data collection practices or just organizations that have just collected it without any 
you know, without letting us know and stuff like that. And we've been holding organizations to task for that. And that's fantastic. And we see more and more privacy laws and le- legislation being proposed and pushed through, you know, our governing bodies. Yeah. So I think that we're definitely finally on the right path. Mm-hmm. Will we see a massive makeover of privacy regulations and actually adopted across the board and across the whole world within the next year? No. No, I mean, GDPR <laughs> has been out for almost, what, two, three years now? Ooh, yeah, I think two years now. And, and there's only like half of the people in Europe are covered by it or something. Like it's, it's yeah. there's not enough, people are still deploying it or still trying to find ways to do it correctly. So it, unfortunately, you know, the system we've built didn't take into consideration what could be done with these kind of threats. And that means that we have to go back and rip out some things that we had in the past and build up new things. I honestly wouldn't mind a new internet. I think that the whole thing's broken and that we're all doomed because our data is out there. It's yeah. out there everywhere. But yeah, I mean, that's that's really what we're going to have to do. Probably within the next five years, we may see something, either one of the two things is going to happen. A, yep. everyone's going to get the right idea and we're all just going to say, all right, data privacy, this is number one priority. Hopefully this other yep. thing doesn't happen. But the other thing being data Pearl Harbor, like I said, something right. will happen that will compromise the data of so many people and cause so much damage that people are not going to be able to ignore the need for data privacy and it'll be a public outcry. And then we'll see that big change happen. So one of those two things happening, hopefully the first one happens, you know, before the second one, (laughs) but based on, on my experience and, and seeing different types of attacks, different types of malware and new methods used by cyber criminals, by just nefarious actors, period, over the years of me working in this industry. And it always comes down to one person, two people have the right idea and then start to build off on that. And it just grows Mm -hmm. and grows. And we are not secured in it because as much as we try as a, you know, species, maybe as Mm -hmm. much as we try to expect the unexpected to prepare for the future, we're rarely ever successful. And, and too often we, re- we think that if it ain't broken, don't fix it. You know, yeah, that's a mentality that may have worked when all you had to worry about was the mechanical parts of a vehicle or, or you know, <laughs> some sort of farming equipment or, or something like that. I'm not, I'm not downplaying or no. belittling this, but, but the technology is so much more complex that right. you really, it, it's your responsibility as a developer, as a planner for how this technology is being deployed to consider how it could be abused in the future. And we haven't done that, and that's why we're in this this pickle right now. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Malwarebytes Chief Product Officer Akshay Bhargava about the parallels between responding to viruses that infect your machine and the coronavirus, which has infected hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> <laughs>